Uh, Father, thanks for giving us the night to be together again. We pray for a uh, just a good time as we discuss your word and what you have to teach us. Pray that there would be um, just receptive hearts and um, open minds and all the things that we need today. And we need your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to talk through uh, a couple of topics tonight. We've been, we're, we're on week five, so... We've talked through two, two weeks through the doctrine of God, so dealing with the nature and existence of God and how he exists and talked about his attributes um, second week. And then third week, we talked about the Bible and what, what is the nature of Scripture. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of creation. Uh, and so we're kind of picking back up and just if we follow the storyline of the Bible, this is the next logical place to land, which is uh, we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin and then we're going to talk about the covenants uh, of, of the Bible. So we're kind of putting two things together that probably deserve their own separate um, you know, sessions, but we just don't, we don't have time to deal with everything individually. So we're going to spend about half our time talking about the doctrine of sin, what that is, what that means. Um, and then we'll talk about the covenants as we wrap up. So, so yeah, this is basically carrying on through the logical progression of theology. That's what systematic theology is meant to do. Just kind of take systematically work through what the Bible teaches on these issues. So let's start with the doctrine of sin and what is sin. Um, not the most positive of conversations, I know, but we will, we'll get there. Uh, we'll get to where it's positive towards the end here. But um, here's, here's a definition that I just took from uh, the New City Catechism. So a catechism is kind of a question and answer format, um, mostly designed for younger people or young Christians. We'd ask a question and then they would have the answer to to try to teach theology. But there's a newer catechism out. Um, there's all kinds of catechisms. Luther's got a couple. Um, Calvin did one for his people. Westminster Catechism is a Presbyterian one. And on and on it goes, right? All these different denominations have their own catechism, but the New City Catechism just answers this question, what is sin, this way. I like it. I think it's a good, concise definition. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So, we're seeing a couple things there. We're seeing that sin is rejecting or ignoring God. And then it also says we're not being or doing what he requires in his law. So um, the way Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology unpacks this is to say that sin is any failure on our part to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So in actions, in attitude, or nature. And th- those, that's a really simple, concise definition from Grudem. But it does go back to this definition. We kind of see those three elements in, in this definition. Uh, rejecting and rebelling uh, would be our actions against God that don't conform to um, the moral law. Ignoring or living without reference to him would have more to do with our kind of attitude towards him, which can be sinful, uh, and then not being uh, 
what he requires gets to the nature, our nature as sinners. So working off Grudem's definition, we're going to just look at each of these three things, act or actions, attitudes, and nature, and then we'll uh, plug away with these. So sin and actions, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, this is probably the most obvious. When you think of the word sin, uh, no matter where, what background you're coming from, this is probably what comes to mind is the things that we do that are wrong. Um, and again, depending on the worldview we hold, we may define this differently than sin, right? But everybody would agree on at least some fundamental level of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, and a good example of that is do not murder, right? Everybody would say, except unless you're a murderer, you would say murder is wrong, right? And so um, that's that's where we would clearly see, okay, you, you're told not to do something, you do it, that's sin, right? That's sin in action. Um, that's an obvious one. Like nobody really has a problem with, with this part of the definition of sin. Um, when we break a commandment, when we do something we're told not to do, or on the other side, we don't do something we are told to do, we are, we're sinning. I think most people would agree, even if they don't use those the same terminology, they would agree with that. Um, so as we talk through this, we're going to look at some Bible verses here. But in our actions, what the Bible teaches is that we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. That's what it means to be a, a sinner. It, it means that we are unable, totally unable to do spiritual good in our actions before God. So it doesn't mean that we can't do anything that we, could, we would call good as sinners. What it means is that we can't do anything good that would change our standing before God within that. Right? That's what we're talking about. We're not saying that you can't, as a non-believer or, or anything, that you can't do good things. It's not like everything you're doing is as wicked as it can be. What we are saying, though, is that the good things you do don't do any good at all bef- between the relationship you have with God and yourself. So a few examples here. We've got, um, we probably won't look at all of these, but um, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Here's what that says. So it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a a polluted garment. So uh, some translations will say our, our righteousness is a filthy rag, um, a polluted garment. It's, in other words, what the Bible is saying there is that all of us have inherent sinfulness apart from Christ. Christ changes all of this, of course, but we have nothing in and of ourselves and none of the actions that we perform um, are righteous before God um, because everything has been tainted by sin. We see this in uh, John chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, he, he talks about this. Jesus does as well. Um, he says, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin, everyone who does sinful things is a slave to sin. We have, we are, we're just bound to be sinners apart from Jesus's work. John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, nothing spiritually to change our position 
or are standing with him. And Hebrews 11, we can, Romans 8, 8 as well, but Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So all the things that we try to do to uh, appease him or please him or uh, you know, change his mind or accept us, if we're doing those things apart from uh, Jesus and going through the gospel and belief in Christ, um, they're, not, they're not actually going to change any, anything ultimately between us and God. Our actions are uh, totally unable to, to do spiritual good before God. So sin in action. Sin in attitude is the next one here. Um, this means that sin is not merely wrongdoing. It's not just doing wrong things. It's also uh, about our motivations for why we do what we do. And so now this is a little bit of a deeper issue because most of us would agree, yeah, doing wrong things, we can, we'll call that sin. Fine, that's fine. But getting underneath that, peeling back that onion and saying, oh, no, it's not just about the actions. It's actually also about why you're doing what you're doing and how you're thinking and all the, all the motives of your heart that are sinful potentially as well. And, and this actually is, is an interesting thing to, to study. Um, again, a bunch of verses here, but in Exodus chapter 20, we're given the Ten Commandments. So that's kind of the the bullet point of of the bullet points of God's law and his expectations for his people as they covenanted with him in the Old Testament. And it's got a long list of things. Many of you are familiar with them, right? Lots of do's and, do, and don'ts uh, in there. But the last commandment in verse 17 is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So this is an interesting commandment because it's not about um, just your actions. It's actually about your attitude, your mentality, your motivation. And it's a much deeper thing. Because he's already established earlier in the Ten Commandments that you shall not steal, verse 15. So that's one of the commandments. You shall not steal. So that's established. That's an action, right? But, but then he goes even further to say, not only are you not to steal, you are, you are not to even want to steal. That's a, that's a deeper thing. Uh, that's basically what it means to not covet. You you're not to look at what your neighbor has and say, I want that. They have it, but I want it. That's, that's, a, that's one of the Ten Commandments. It's very interesting because it's not just, oh, yeah, don't take your neighbor's house. Like you're not, everyone agrees you're not supposed to just break into someone's house and squat there and then basically say, this is my house now. That would be stealing. Can't do that. That's under a different commandment. But then, you, but then the, it goes deeper to say that you can't even want to do that. <laughs> like, Okay, wow. Um, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, he's already established you can't commit adultery, but now he's saying you can't want to commit adultery either. That's, that's a much, I mean, so, uh, so when we start to look at the commands of God in that light, we, we start to realize, yeah, we're, we're sunk pretty quickly here, right? Like this is not a tenable situation for, for people who, 
uh, are trying by their own efforts to honor God. This is, there's something, there's something deeper going on. We, we can't actually do this. Uh, it just becomes an impossibility for us to actually live this way um, because to, to fundamentally at the core change our motivations is like an, an impossibility almost. So Jesus gets to this issue too and, and famously in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, um, I'll give you a couple of examples here. He, uh, verse 21 and 22, he says, You've heard it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, so there Jesus is just quoting the Old Testament commandment and basically saying, okay, here's what's going to happen if you do murder. You're going to be liable to judgment. You're going to go to court. And, and if you're found guilty, you're going to go to jail. Um, but then he says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So that's a, this is a much deeper thing that Jesus is, is doing. He's not just saying, okay, keep yourself from the sinful action. He's actually saying there's a, there's a deeper problem of your heart to the point that if you hate your brother, which we would all agree, I think, that the motivation behind murder is hatred. That's right. So, so sin's the, actual, the, the true sin behind murder is that you hated somebody and you decided to take their life out of hatred. That's the deeper issue. And Jesus is going, it doesn't matter if you've had the self-control to keep yourself from actually going through with it. If you've actually hated your brother, you're guilty of it. And then, then he goes on towards the end here, or uh, f- further on here, in verse 27 and 28, he talks about the adultery commandment. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, same, same principle, right? It's the, there's the commandment that we may be able to keep ourselves from the action, but, we, but it's a much harder thing to keep ourselves from the motive. And so that's a, that's a bigger problem. And that, that starts to really dismantle the idea that we can somehow, apart from Christ and his grace, live and honor God. We, we just can't do it. It's, it just becomes an in, impossible scenario if this is how the Bible defines sin. And so we see there's wrongdoings, not just in our actions, but in our motives. Uh, the, the passage in Galatians 5, we won't turn there, um, but just... Basically, it's just a list of the works of the flesh, um, the works of a sinful uh, heart. And some of those are actions and some of those are attitudes. So it's just a, it's a helpful list of things that Paul gives to kind of point, point us in this direction. So you've got sins and actions. You have sins and attitude. Then, then we start to get even deeper into, into the hole. And that is um, there's also sin in human nature. Um, this is the hardest one, I think, is, is at least if I've talked to people, this is the hardest one for people to embrace or believe or accept because it gets down to the very essence of who we are and 
We don't want to believe that at the core of who we are is a sinner. We don't, nobody wants to believe that about themselves. And, and I understand that. I don't want to believe that either. But it is biblical. The Bible teaches it. Whether we like it or not, it's, it's the reality. And so the very essence of who we are at our heart level, our nature, we are affected and tainted by sin. We, so, so it's the issue of sin in the Bible is a much deeper issue than just these are the behaviors you need to avoid and these are the behaviors you need to do. Like that's, that's how so much religion has kind of painted this, right? So many times we've just taught that Christianity boils down to this set of rules that we have to obey. But the Bible teaches that there's a much deeper problem, um, that, that it's actually at the very core of our being, our existence as human beings is tainted with sin and affected by sin. This is what the theologians refer to as total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean we are as wicked as we can possibly be. That's not what total means there. That's not the point of total, right? Because there's lots of people who are living life without Jesus, who are very nice, very generous, very kind people, just living live in life. It does not mean that we are as wicked or as evil as we can possibly be. What total means is that there is no part of us that is not affected by sin. That's, a, that's the meaning of it. So by total depravity, we're saying that our whole being, our whole, every part of us, our mind, our body, our soul, our heart, our everything, is in some way affected by sin to the point that we are... Uh, we are unable to redeem ourselves, unable to save ourselves, unable to help ourselves get to Jesus. We need him to do that work. So this is taught throughout the Bible as well, but um, I've got three verses here and then three verses on the next slide. But Psalm 51, verse 5, um, this is the psalm of repentance from King David. He's, uh, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, He's been confronted by, the, by Nathan the prophet in this, and he repents. And so this whole psalm is basically his expression of repentance and, and uh, all that. But in verse 5, he says this. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So by, by saying that he was brought forth in iniquity means that he was, from the moment he was born, he, he was a sinner. When he says that he was uh, in sin, did his mother conceive him? He's not saying anything about his mom. He's actually talking about himself and is saying that from the moment of his conception, he was tainted with a sinful nature. And, and that's true for David. It's also true for us. Like we're all, from the moment that we come into this world, we have sin affecting our lives. We see this in Romans 3, verse 10, um, where, where the Apostle Paul, I mean, all of chapter 3 is really helpful on this, but just this one verse for, for us today, I think will be good on this. Um, it just simply says, uh, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So without any ambiguity without any like, oh, there's some exceptions to the rule. No, no one is righteous. No one, not one of us. So all of us have 
this sin nature, no one can claim righteousness in and of themselves. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, again, we're, we're seeing that we have a, an even deeper problem. This is probably the clearest passage on this. Um, this is where Paul talks about our, our nature uh, itself. And he says, in verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So again, everybody's included in this. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So body, mind, affected by sin. And then here's the key phrase. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature, by our very core uh, of our existence, children of wrath, meaning that we were sinners to the core, deserving judgment from God. But that's where in verse four, he, he brings us to the good news, right? That's all the bad news. And all that's what we're talking about right now is the bad news. There's good news. And that is that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So you're seeing this. This is what the gospel is. It's bad news that we can't save ourselves. And it's good news that Jesus loved us and chose to save us. So what this means essentially is that in our very nature, at the very core of who we are, we completely and totally lack spiritual good before God, just as we do in our actions, just as we do in our attitudes. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 talks about this. That It says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart, uh, when, when the Bible talks about our heart, it's not talking about the, the organ in our chest that pumps blood. It's talking about the core of our being. And Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked, desperately wicked and, and deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? Uh, Paul in Romans 7 talks about himself with, with this. Um, let me get there. Verse 18. He says of himself, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Um, and the flesh is a, is a term that the Bible uses to talk about ourselves apart from Christ. And he says, for I have the desire uh, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So, so there's that issue, right? There's nothing good that dwells in me that is in our sinful, apart from Christ state. state. And even in that state, we can't carry it out. We, even if we want to do what's right, we don't have the ability to do it. And then Ephesians four seventeen through 19 um, says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles there in this context is those who are in the flesh apart from Christ. Um, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice every kind of impurity. 
but that is not the way you learn Christ. So, so here we're seeing this just compounded issue of there, there's nothing in us by our nature that goes towards God, wants God, pursues God. We need something uh, to step in from outside of us to help us. We'll get to where, where that help comes from in a bit, but let's, let's go ask an even more fundamental question because we've just kind of started to unpack, okay, well, what is the basic definition of sin? The basic definition is we, it's any failure to conform to the moral law of God in our actions, in our attitudes, or in our nature. Okay, that's the definition. Um, but where did this thing called sin come from? Why is it in our lives? Why has it affected us? And how has it done so? So this is what I want to spend some time talking through. The, the, the first thing we've got to establish is that sin did not come from God. It's not from God. Okay, Deuteronomy 32.4, Job 34.10, um, they, they all make this point. But I think James 1.13 is probably the, the clearest one here. And we'll, well, they're all clear, but um, I'll, I'll read this one because I'm in the New Testament. It's easier to get to it. So uh, James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God, um, I lost my place. Oh, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So there we've established, and we, you could go look at Deuteronomy and Job, and same, basically the same concept is, is stated there, um, that God is not the author of evil. He's not the one who tempts us towards evil because he's not tempted for it. He's, he's morally perfect. So sin does not come from God. Um, and and that, this is highlighted by the New City Catechism as well. There's a question in there that asks, did God create us unable to keep his law? And the answer is no. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. So it's not that God created us unable to keep his law. It's not that he started with us in, in spiritual bankruptcy. It's that we actually fell because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so that's what we want to un unpack a bit today. Um, We'll spend a little time here in Genesis 3 because this is the clearest and most concise passage that talks about this thing we call the fall, um, the fall of man. This is where the Bible records this. And we know and established last week that God created the world out of nothing and he created it to be very good, that, that the world is this very good thing. And that's what he declared on the on the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So Adam and Eve are made. Everything's made. It's all great. There's perfection. There's sinlessness. There's perfect communion with God. There's perfect communion with one another. And we look at our own world and go, well, that's not how it is. So what, what went wrong? How did this happen? And that's what Genesis 3 tells us. It didn't take long for at least in our Bibles, I don't know how long it actually took in, in real time, but in our Bibles, it goes pretty quickly from a perfect state to a very imperfect state of things. 
And so verse, th- verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Uh, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so this basically is the, the, the clear story of where it went wrong. God puts Adam in the garden, and he tells Adam in chapter 2, uh, verse 16 and 17, if you want to back up there for a second, the Lord said to the man, commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, God gives that command to Adam before Eve is created. And so at, at some point after Eve is created, Adam conveys this to her. And um, so what ends up happening is that the serpent shows up and starts talking to Eve. Now, I don't know what to make of that. Like, I, I don't know why um, she was listening to a snake talk to her. This is weird, and it seems kind of strange. Um, There's no indication at all that the animals normally talked. So this is like what's happening here. But this is what's happening. Basically, Christians believe that this was um, Satan disguising himself as an animal, sowing the seeds of doubt into Eve's mind and heart. She succumbs to the temptation. She disobeys God's law. She gives that fruit to Adam, who also eats and he was with her the whole time. So what is he doing, sitting around doing nothing? Like, he really failed in his responsibility in this. And that's actually what's interesting, is that the Bible doesn't really blame Eve for this. There's one passage in 1 Timothy 2 where she, it acknowledges that she uh, sinned first uh, and then Adam. But everywhere else, it's all Adam. Adam gets the blame. And there's a reason for that. It's because Adam was the head of humanity. He was supposed to be the one that took God's word, communicated it to his family, and protected them from harm. And he failed to do that. And, and so he, not only did he fail in his uh, just apathy and being a lazy person and not doing his responsibility, he's standing there watching all this go down without stepping in, without intervening, without doing anything. He's just there. And then... She eats, and then he eats, and they, so they both break the commandment willingly to do this. What, what this story tells us is the historical nature of, of what happened, but 
Um, it also gives us the theology of what we would refer to as inherited sin. Um, traditionally, his theologians refer to this as original sin. Uh, but Wayne Grudem likes inherited sin, and I kind of do too. It, it clears some, some things up because original sin, that phrase could, could convey that we're talking about the original sin, right? The first sin. But what original sin in the theological sense means is this is the sin that we've all inherited as, as descendants of Adam and Eve. And so what, what this tells us is that we have brought in or inherited through the natural course of life, a sinful nature from Adam that has led each of us to, to the sinful actions and attitudes that we, that we uh, exhibit. So we inherit a sinful nature, and that nature is the cause of our actions and attitudes being sinful. Um, so this is pretty, uh, pretty much everywhere in the Bible. Uh, Romans 5 talks about this a lot. That's going to be our primary text tonight. Um, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 highlights this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 21 and 22. We're going to look at those, but let me go to this next slide. Um, let's ask this question. Why does Adam's sin become our sin? That, that's like, that, to, to individualistic societies like America, this doesn't make sense to us. Because we're, we're taught, you're an individual. And it's true, we are, and that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's right. Um, so I, but I think there's a little bit of a disconnect in our minds as to why we get blamed for what Adam did. And the answer to that is that the Bible teaches that Adam was mankind's representative. Uh, this would be, the, the theological term for this would be the federal headship. Uh, federal headship, and that's just com- complicated and confusing, but that, that idea of he's the head of humanity, he's the, he's the guy. As Adam goes, so we go. And that may sound super unfair to you, but just remember, just remember that because you inherited Adam's nature as a sinner, you are also a sinner by choice, and so am I. We all are, right? So it's not just that we... Uh, inherited this sinful nature, but we live these perfect little angel lives and we shouldn't be blamed for our sin. No, because we've inherited Adam's sin nature, we too are sinful in our actions and in our attitudes. So we're just as complicit in this. Um, but but it, it is something that the Bible teaches, that Adam's sin is held over us because he's the, the head of humanity. And... Um, so let's go to Romans 5 real quickly here. We'll just kind of look at these. And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15 too, as well, 15.21 as well. Uh, Romans 5, though. Um, we'll start in verse 12. Uh, we'll look at 12 to 14, and then we'll skip down to verse 18 and 19. But here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned, right? So, so you're seeing this kind of trajectory of sin came into the world through Adam. That's who the one man is. And death came in because of sin. And death spreads to all of us, but, but it's not like any of us are innocent. We've all also sinned. 
for, in, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. That's a subject for another day. But verse 14 says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So death reigns from Adam to Moses. Basically, Paul's making the point that the law didn't exist until Moses came on the scene, but death was still in the world. The consequences of sin were still in the world. And that's because the, even if the sinning was not the same between us and Adam, sin is still the, the main issue. Then you look down at verse 18 and 19, and Paul says, therefore... As one trespass, or this could also be translated the trespass of one. So it could be, either way, it's, it's true, right? Whether you translate it as one trespass or the trespass of one, one person. Uh, still talking about Adam's sin. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here Paul's contrasting Adam and Jesus and is saying that Adam is the guy who brought us into this mess and his sin became our sin. And that's, that's why it is the way it is. Jesus comes in and lives a righteous life, a perfectly righteous life on the behalf of sinners so that his life becomes our life and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And so that's, that's the, the Paul, Paul's kind of theology of all this. But what's clear in this is that Adam was our head. He was our, our, our guy and he, he failed to live uh, as he ought to. So, so we've inherited this sin from him and we need a savior to dig us out of it, which, of course, is Jesus. Uh, let, me, let me just spend a couple minutes here talking about some of the historical views of this because not everyone in Christianity has agreed with um, how I've outlined this. Um, and, and I'm going to just say, I'm going to give you three kind of general perspectives. Um, one is a heresy, one is um, wrong, and then the third is what I've outlined. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I got to be con- confident of what I'm teaching, right? Um, but so Pelagianism is the, is the heresy. This was declared a heresy by the church, um, and I'll get, get there on the next slide. But Pelagianism came from a guy named Pelagius in about the 400s, late 300s, early 400s A.D. Uh, he was a contemporary of, uh, of Augustine or Augustine. And we don't know a whole lot about Pelagius. He, uh, he sort of disappears off the scene um, after he's condemned as a heretic. He kind of goes away like he disappears. But they think he was from Britain. Uh, and then he came down to um, northern um, Africa where Augustine was and started teaching his stuff. And Augustine confronted him a lot on this. So basically his belief is that people bear... Uh, no relationship whatsoever to Adam or his sin. So inherited sin, total depravity, total inability, Pelagius would say it's not a thing. His, his view would be essentially, in a, in a nutshell, that every single human being 
completely individual on their own, starts out as a sinless being and has to make the choice to obey or to sin. And I think he would have said that nobody actually accomplished living a perfect life, um, but he would say that no one has any connection whatsoever to Adam. We're just our own. Uh, this, was, this was not um, handled or taken well by the church. It was declared at the uh, Council of Ephesus in 431 AD to be a, heretic, a heresy, a false teaching. And of course, they're going to point to the Bible here, which very clearly contradicts what Pelagius was saying. I mean, it's, it is outside of what the Bible clearly says on, it, on the f- surface. Um, so Pelagianism is not, not a great system. Uh, Semi-Pelagianism is kind of a broad category, but this would de- deny uh, liability for the guilt of Adam. So basically, it wouldn't say that we have no connection to Adam, but it's still, it's still too far uh, towards Pelagian for it to really be a, a good option for us. But they would just say that, yeah, you know, Adam is kind of the, the head of humanity, but we're not responsible for his sin. Um, he did that. That's his deal. But they would also say, they would take it a little further than Pelagius, and they would not say that human beings are total sinless, clean slate angels the moment they're born. They would say, no, there's a corrupted sin. There's, there's corruption of sin, and there's influence by sin. And, and so, yes, we're, we're sinners, they would acknowledge at least that we're sinners, um, and they would, even if they kind of still go too far that way. Um, and then, so this view would attempt to keep mankind's ability to respond to grace as a total free act of the will, uh, because they don't believe that the human will is even tainted by sin. So they, they, they want to keep that without stepping into heresy. So they're kind of riding the fence on this. But... We, but we would say, uh, or at least the Augustinian and Reformed view, I would say um, that, no, sin has affected every single part of us, including our wills. We make bad decisions because we're sinners. And we don't come to Jesus willingly without his help to get us there, right? Because we're sinners. And, and so we do get there. We do make those choices. We do decide to, to follow Jesus. All that's true, but the question is, is who's, who's the one that leads us there? And is it us because we just have this perfect free will to do whatever we want? Or is it, or is it Jesus working through his grace to get us there? And that would, be, that would be my view. Because if we're found to be completely guilty um, of sin and even dead in sin, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, there's a problem there. We've gotta, that's got to be overcome. There's got to be a, a work of God to get us to him. And, and thankfully, it's there and it happens. And, and it's called the preaching of the gospel and the, the grace that draws us in. Uh, so here's how um, John Calvin defines this. This is kind of the out of the reformed stream. Um, he says original sin or inherited sin is a hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath and then also brings forth in us those works what the scriptures call the work of the flesh. So Calvin would simply say that sin has infected every part of us, um, makes us under God's wrath until Jesus takes that wrath from us, 
by, by our belief in the gospel. And uh, it also is the result of the works of sin that we see in our lives. Okay, so those, that's inherited sin. That's the issue of, of um, how we are sinners by nature and by choice because of that nature. So what are the results of sin, though? So sin has come in. It's affected every one of us. What has sin done to this world? That's where we're going to go next here. The first and most obvious is, is physical death. This is clearly spelled out in God's command to, to Adam in Genesis 2. Uh, don't eat from this tree, and if you do, you will surely die. Um, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, the, the thing that sin earns is death. Uh, so we see death is um, the result of sin. 1 Corinthians 15 20 to 21. Um, I'll read those for us here. It says, <clears throat> uh, let me find it. There it is. Uh, for as by a man came death, so that's Adam, by a man came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we're, we're seeing this clear message that sin is the reason we experience death in the world. Um, it's one of the hardest and most heartbreaking realities of it, and that's, but, it, but that's why it exists. We also see a dimension of spiritual death because of sin, a separation from God, a, a broken relationship that God and us were meant to have. It's now been shattered because of sin and that's what the bible would refer to as spiritual death Um, again we're going back to ephesians 2 colossians 2 also says the same thing essentially um, that we were dead in our sins and and so there's sin led to a spiritual death between us and god we also see the result of sin is uh, relational strife relational strife if you want to go back to Genesis 3, I want to just take us through the rest of this. I didn't read the whole chapter. Um, but towards the end of Genesis 3, we see basically God giving, giving uh, Adam and Eve um, what the deal is going to be now. Like here, here's what's happened. You've disobeyed. Here's how this is going to, here's how this is going to look. And in G- Genesis 3.16, uh, um, God is speaking to Eve it says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So in, in, this, in this, essentially it's, a, it's a, a curse in the sense that, hey, God is saying this is the ramification of your sin. Two things come out for Eve. One is pain in childbearing. That, of course, refers to the physical pain of childbearing. But I also think there's a, there's a relational dimension of this as well, that mothers and their children will have relational strife too in this fallen world. Like there's going to be pain in raising children and, and what that means. And, and then you have relational strife between her and her husband um, where her desire will be contrary to him and he will have 
this responsibility to rule over you. And it's like, okay, like there's just going to be this tension and this headbutting and this, this disagreement all the time between men and women in, in that relationship. So we see relational strife is a huge cause uh, or is caused by sin and it's a huge ramification of it. In fact, the whole Bible outlines this. That's why that's the other reference is the whole, just read the Bible. And that's the whole thing. Like you read uh, literally the next chapter and Cain kills Abel. That's relational strife, right? He's, he gets jealous of his brother and he, he commits the first murder because of it. You see all throughout the whole scripture, this brokenness of relationships. And um, so, yeah, that's a huge part of it. Second thing we see is a broken world, a broken natural world. Uh, the created world is not what it was meant to be. Look at verse 17 through 19 here. Um, this is where he speaks to Adam. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field, but and by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here we're seeing that Adam had been given this perfect garden where all the fruit trees and all the food just readily came. It was just there, and, and he could have it and enjoy it. And now God says, now you've got to work for it, and it's going to be hard work. You're going to sweat for the bread that you eat. You're going to have to fight thorns and thistles. And so, yeah, anybody who's uh, gardened, you know how obnoxious this is, right? Like, it's just, you're cursing under your breath because of all the weeds and all the things. And it's like, yeah, none of this comes easy anymore. It's not, it, it was meant to be easy. It was, God created the world in such a way that it was meant to just yield its fruit. And now it's not going to do that because the, the whole created world has been damaged by sin. And we see that in Romans 8 as well. Uh, Paul, I literally just turned to it without even trying. That was awesome. Uh, Romans 8, how doesn't that happen all the time? Verse 20 and through 22, uh, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul's expressing there the reality that we have a, a broken world, that the world itself is uh, feeling the effects of the fall and is, and, and is waiting for its redemption. So uh, it, in a nutshell, I mean, we could, we could talk way longer on this, um, but in a nutshell, that's the doctrine of sin according to uh, you know, our kind of perspective of Christianity here. And I think that it's generally what, what your typical believer would, would agree with. There may be some nuance in this between different groups and different Christians, but for the most part, this is what we're 
we're looking at. We're looking at a, a fallen world because of Adam and Eve. We've inherited a sin nature. That sin nature has created us or has made us into sinners by action and by attitude. And the whole world and all of the relationships we have are, are messed up because of it. And so the world is not what it is supposed to be or what it was designed to be, but this is the world in which we live. So any questions quickly on that? Um, anything that we got? Well, when you were talking about uh, Eve uh, sinning first and then uh, Adam is getting the blame, the man always gets the blame for it. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. That, you got it. Another question I got here: the serpent. Mm-hmm. Did the snake get created from the serpent? That I don't know. I'm going to yeah, say. I always wondered about that. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I'll have to. I'll have to think about that and look into that. It, yeah. It says that the. Uh, Yeah, that's true. That's true. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot we we don't have a lot of clarity on, but um, but yeah, that's that's good stuff. That's a weird question. Why do they live so long when that? Um, I mean, some of these yeah. people live 900 years. <laughs> yeah. So humans were originally created to live forever, and I think there was a, um, a you see kind of a gradual decrease in years over over the generations and then when at when um noah and the flood happens god basically puts a cap on it and says okay 120 years and that we're done because otherwise if you live too long you're going to get super super evil again and so i think after you know i i don't know the exact answer as to why they lived as long as they did other than human beings and in the intentional design were to live forever. And so death was a natural um, result of the fall, but they, they may have had just a, you know, they may have been made of hardier stuff or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, or sin got too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and that's what ended up happening when, where God, when God brought the flood, it was like, okay, it's, it's gotten untenable here. And so he brings he brings the lifespan down to 120 years after that. Yeah, Rodney. Before the flood, they claim it never rained. Is that true? Um. It was just. What's that? They told me they had a moisture from the ground or whatever kept kept what they needed. I'm not. I think so. I don't really know. I yeah. yeah, That's a good question too. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, there you go. First sprinkling. Yeah. So guys always talk about God's planning and all of, all that throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, so did he know this was all going to happen from the start? Aha. Uh-huh. Great question. Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> uh, so that gets into. Oh, this is gonna. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna use a fifty dollar word here. 
So that's the, that's the debate between infralapsarianism or supralapsarianism, which we're, we're not, we're not, yeah, exactly. I'm patting myself on the back, I know big words. Uh, yeah, no, I can't spell it for you, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Yeah, I think that it's, I think the Bible teaches that this wasn't, Christ wasn't plan B, he was always plan A. He was always, God, in his foreknowledge, in his will, in his perfection, he knew that these things were going to happen. Nothing blindsided him. Um, at the same time, you know, he, he, permitted, uh, he permitted them to fail and to fall because I think actually John Piper gives one of the best display, uh, a- answers to this question, and I'll butcher his, his eloquence in it. But essentially what he said was that, um, if God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, there was something that only sin could allow God's love to be displayed at the fullest level that it was meant to be displayed. And so he permitted it to happen. He didn't make it happen. He didn't cause it to happen. They did that of their own free will. But God in his, in his perfection and his knowledge said, this is... This is going to be okay because I can display my love for these sinners in sending myself to die for them. So it makes sense. I yeah, mean, he thought if they if they were going to have his love just continuously forever and not never have to worry about it. Yeah, it would <coughs> yeah, could be. It's all that's all good stuff. So, well, thanks. Good questions. We do need to move move through here. So sorry, we can talk afterwards if you guys have more, but. Um, all right, let's talk for a little bit about covenants. Um, I'm, I'm putting covenants in here in this session, even though it could probably be a, its own. Um, because I'm just trying to, we're, we're going to get to Christ, the doctrine of the person of Christ next week, and then the doctrine of the work of Christ the week after. So we're going to take Christ in a couple of weeks and, and unpack this. But I, I feel like the, the covenants in the scriptures actually serve as a, as a precursor, as a preparation for, for Jesus. And what you see in the storyline of the Bible is essentially it's, okay, creation, very good. Sin breaks down what God has created to be very good. And human beings would just be hopelessly lost if it wasn't for God initiating a relationship with his people. But for whatever reason, in God's perfection and in God's wisdom, that was going to be thousands upon thousands of years after the fall until Christ came. So in the meantime, God doesn't just leave his people hanging alone out there to to die. He pursues them, and he pursues them through a particular relationship called a covenant. And uh, so I want to I think it's an important thing. I don't think we talk a lot about covenants in our in our church context very much. So I thought I'd just do a, a kind of the second half of this on on this. And my intention is to wrap up about 7.30, so, because we've been going way, way too long for most of these. But um, the, the definition of a covenant, let's start with just the basic definition. This is from Grudem's book here, uh, his textbook. He says it's an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. All right, so I, I don't love this definition, but it, I think it's, it's technically right. Um, it is a um, divinely, I would say, initiated uh, 
agreement. I don't like the word legal necessarily in there, but that's okay. It is an agreement between God and mankind um, that does stipulate the relationship and what the relationship looks like. Um, There's a really good book on this if you're interested in digging in more because we're just going to do a surface level thing. But uh, Christ and the Covenants by O. Palmer Robertson. This book was written probably in, I don't know, the 1980s. Um, Really good book. But uh, I I don't know when it was written. But it was like, yeah, probably 1980s. Um, He does a great job of unpacking like in great depth what these covenants were and, and what they meant and and basically what I'm going to do with you guys is just take you through the quick skim over of his book. Um, so this is a quote from, from the book here. And I think this is where he defines it a little bit better than Grudem does. And, and it's, it's just an interesting definition. He says, a covenant involves commitments with life and death consequences. At the point of a covenantal inauguration, the parties of the covenant are committed to one another by formalizing a formalizing process of bloodshedding. The bloodshedding represents the intensity of the commitment of the covenant. By the covenant, they are bound for life and death. And so what you see is, um, and he walks through like in each of the covenants of the Bible, where, that, where those pieces come into it. We're not going to look in great depth on it, but, but I think it's, it's just an interesting... Uh, dimension here that basically it's a it's a blood oath that God makes with his people to say we're I'm in this thing with you and and um it's actually really interesting that in most of the covenants that I can think of it's it's one-sided it's not it's not two-sided it's God's committing to do this for his people not the other way around in in a covenantal System. There were a lot of covenants made between these ancient kings uh, in the world that the that the Jewish people lived in the Old Testament, and these little kings would, you know, they had little kingdoms and these little city states, and they would all make treaties with each other, and and they would make these covenants, and it was kind of formalized the same way that God makes covenants, except that what would happen is that both of these parties would make equal commitments to each other, and. They would usually sacrifice an animal to say, okay, if I break my end of the deal, I'm going to end up like this animal. I'm going to be cut in half and just killed, right? And so that was like the intensity of it. But, but God in the Old Testament covenants actually is the one who does the covenanting. And he doesn't, he doesn't have his people uh, actually commit a blood oath to him. It's very interesting. But we don't have time to get into all of that. Um, the The... The two overarching covenants in the Bible, there are really two categories. One is the covenant of creation, um, or it's often called, in, uh, it's called the covenant of works in a lot of the, uh, theologies. Um, that's kind of the one overarching covenant. And then the second is the covenant of redemption. So the covenant of creation or the covenant of works um, has a far-reaching implication, lots and lots of things to say about this, but generally it, it's um, understood that God established a relationship with mankind in the Garden of Eden where he, has, he determined the role that we should have on the earth. And, and this is where God basically says to Adam, I'm putting you in the garden to take care of this, to enjoy it, um, and also don't eat the fruit of this tree, and if you do, you're going to die. Like that's basically the covenant of, of works. 
um, the covenant of works was imposed on Adam and, and he, he failed in his perfect state to keep his end of the agreement on this. This is where the agreement thing, it was on his end and he failed to do it. Um, and there, therefore broke the covenant between him and God and, and has brought us all under that, that curse. Um, so that's happened. That's what we just articulated through the first half of this thing. Where we're going to go now is the covenant of redemption, which is kind of the second broad category of, of covenants in the Bible. And this is on display. This displays through numerous covenants. Um, so the covenant of redemption is a category that encompasses multiple covenants within it. Um, these were instituted after sin entered the world. And each of them actually build on each other. As you read through the Old Testament story, each of them builds further and further on each other, leading to their fulfillment in Jesus. Okay, so we're going to walk through just the basic covenants that we, we see in the scripture. Um, there's, there's a number of them. We'll go through them kind of quickly, but um, they, they build. They're building up. It's like they're, they're building a staircase to get up to Jesus. And each is a different step in that process. Uh, so the first covenant we talked about this is Adam, the covenant of commencement. This is all, this is our, this is all taken from Christ and the covenants. I'm using his, his outline here. Um, in Genesis three fourteen to 19, we, we read those verses or some of those verses to talk about the curses of, of uh, their sin. The, these record the provisions of the Adamic, Adamic covenant. Um, God speaks to Satan, to the woman, and then to the man, following the order of their defection from, uh, from loyalty to their creator. Elements of curse and blessing are found in each address, thus serving structurally to bind inseparably the covenant of creation with the covenant of redemption. So the, the, the explanation of things that God gives to Adam and Eve and to the serpent sets the stage for all the covenants. It's kind of the launching pad that, that he uses. So that's the covenant of commencement. It's starting with Adam. The second covenant we encounter in the Bible is Noah. The Noahic covenant is what it's often called. And I'm just sticking with the easy, the easy way to pronounce their names. So Noah is the covenant of preservation. This is found, you can read about this in Genesis 6 through 9. Uh, the covenant with Noah provides a framework for both judgment and salvation. God judges the seed of Satan as he promised he would in, in Genesis 3, but also preserves a people for himself. So we see that in the story, right? The, the people of the world get so wicked that God has to cleanse the world of the unrighteousness. He decides to start again with Noah and his family, and he provides them preservation. He provides them life and safety. He has Noah build this ark to keep his family and, and a representation of all the animals alive. And, and they survive this 40-day, 40 40-night 40 flood of the whole earth. But the point is, is that this covenant that God made with Noah serves to point us to Christ because as Noah was saved in the ark, so in Christ alone, we're saved. He, he's our preservation. He's our true uh, safety and security and freedom and salvation from, from destruction. And so we see he, this, this Noahic covenant is building up to Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus. 
but it serves as the, kind of the second rung in the ladder. And then you get to Abraham. The Abraham covenant was the covenant of promise. Genesis 15, God promises to take Abraham and make his family a blessing to the whole world. It's a complicated story. You read it and you're going, wow, there's a lot of moving pieces. But the fundamental part of this is that God says to Abraham, I'm going to take you and your wife, Sarah, and you're going to have a baby. These people were like, well, the Bible actually in the book of Hebrews says they were as good as dead when they made this promise. Because I think Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100. And yeah, they're as good as dead, right, at that point. Like, how are they going to have a baby? So God makes this outlandish promise. It's like it's almost too good to believe. And Abraham believes, but he he has some questions. And then Sarah seems to have some more doubts and gets a little bit scolded for it. But ultimately, the promise is that Abraham and Sarah are going to have this baby. And and through him, this this child of promise, they're going to have, they're going to bless the whole world through, through their family. And of course, we know as we read our New Testaments that Christ is the fulfillment of this because Christ came through the family of Abraham and is the fulfillment of this. In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes a very clear case for this, um, that, that it is really not about Abraham, it's about Jesus. And that's what Abraham is just pointing us to Jesus. But this promise that God made to Abraham and his family uh, was fulfilled. It was carried through and, and Jesus was born in and through the family of Abraham. Again, this is very quick kind of overviews. They're not, we're not going in depth, but then you get from Abraham to Moses. The Mosaic covenant is the covenant of law. So here God has brought his people out of Egypt. You get through the book of Genesis, right? And then it ends on a high note in Genesis. There, Joseph's there, all the family gets down there. They're all saved from the famine, and they settle in into Egypt and everything's looking great. Then you turn over one page to Exodus and it's like, oh no, this new Pharaoh doesn't know who Joseph was, doesn't like that there's all these people who he doesn't know right on his doorstep. And so he enslaves the people of Israel and they are, they're oppressed and they're mistreated. And uh, God delivers them out of the hands of slavery through Moses' leadership And as they get out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they get to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. And so the law, and this story is from basically Exodus 19 through 24, the law shows us that what God's perfect righteousness looks like, and it shows us what God's perfect standard of life and relationship with him is. It also, I believe, shows us that we can't actually do what he calls us to do. Uh, we can't live a perfect life apart from his enabling grace to uh, receive perfection in Jesus. So the law shows us God's perfect righteousness. It shows us the, the way life is meant to be. But because we're sinners, that's not attained. It's, it's, not, it's not enough. And so we know that only Christ could be the fulfillment of this, this covenant of the law by coming into the world, God becoming man, living under the law, and living actually the perfect life under the law that none of us could live. We see that in Matthew 5.17, where Jesus says, don't, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
He came to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and everything that, they, that the Old Testament was teaching. He, he's the, the fulfillment of this. Romans 12.4 uh, also points us to Christ as the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus is the one who ultimately brings this to fruition. But while the people of the Old Testament were living, they were living under this Mosaic covenant um, in that season, in that period of time, uh, under the law, failing to live under the law, which is why God gave them the sacrificial system to say, okay, you're going to fail you're, and you've got to make, make that right. So here's these animals that you are able to, to sacrifice to cover your sin. And all of that, of course, is in preparation for, for Christ's sacrifice. Um, then from Moses, you, you get to you get, go through a whole tumultuous period of them getting into the promised land. And then they get to King David. King David, the Davidic covenant, is the covenant of the kingdom. So before David, uh, there was just a bunch of turmoil, a ton of turmoil between um, the, the people of Israel and the Philistines and all the other people of the Canaanites. And there was really no peace and security and it was just a big mess. But, but God finally gives them peace and security and establishes David uh, as this kind of warrior king who would once and for all defeat their enemies um, in, in the land there and then um, establish the kingdom. So in 2 Samuel 7, we read about David's covenant with the Lord. And in the Davidic covenant, God's purpose is to redeem a people to himself reaches the highest peak of the Old Testament. This is kind of the, 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 the ultimate pinnacle of the Old Testament covenants. Um, under David, the kingdom of God arrives and God formally establishes the manner in which he will rule among his people. And he promises that there will be a king on the throne of David forever and ever. That's the promise of the Davidic covenant, which we know Jesus is. Jesus comes through the line of David. Uh, that's why the genealogies in, in the, you know, when you're like reading through the phone book in the first part of Matthew and, and Luke, that's not there by accident. That's not there to annoy you as you're reading it. It's there to show you definitive proof that Jesus is the Davidic king that God promised. And so they're, they're going back through the, the lines of genealogy to show us this reality that Jesus is who, he, uh, who God was preparing his people for as their king. Um, and so, so there's that. And then the final covenant that's made in the scriptures is the covenant of Christ. Uh, the covenant of consummation. And this is where Jesus institutes the covenant at the Lord's Supper. There he shares with his disciples in the upper room before his death that his body and his blood would be shed um, in, this, in the same kind of bloodshedding thing that all these covenants had entailed, um, that he would be the once and for all sacrifice for sin uh, that would once and for all unite them to him as their as as the the preservation that they need for salvation like with Noah as the as the god of promise that was made to Abraham as as the ultimate law keeper and and the one who truly restores a relationship with us like the mosaic covenant and the true king uh, that we have in in David and so Jesus kind of brings all of these things to fruition and Hebrews chapter uh, 8 spells this out. I, I love Hebrews because it does, it does help us understand like how Jesus fulfills so many of these Old Testament promises. 
Um, so in verse 1, it says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent of the Lord, uh, that the Lord set up, not man. Um, and and he basically just kind of goes through all of these these ways that Christ is better than Moses, right? In verse six, he says, "But it is, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, uh, as the covenants he mediates is a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second." For he finds fault with them when he says, and here he quotes, um, he quotes from, I think it's, I think it's Joel uh, or um, somebody has a better cross-reference thing than me. I don't know. But here it's quoting from the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each um, one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So that very clearly spells out that the Old Testament covenants are no longer needed. They're done we don't have to live under the law, praise God. We can eat shrimp and bacon, bacon-wrapped shrimp, bacon-wrapped bacon, all the good stuff. We can, we can just enjoy it, right? Because the law has been fulfilled in Jesus and the, the old covenant has been replaced by a new covenant in Jesus. So that's um, a very quick survey of the biblical covenants, but this sets us up, this tees us up for, for our, our discussions over the next couple weeks on, on Christ who he is, what he does. Um, but he's the bridge that gets us from sin into redemption. So uh, any questions on that? Um, anything that you guys want clarity on? I'll tr- do my best on it, but a um, lot, lot there. Well, what about like, the laws, um, like the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Say, what happens with that? Is that part of the covenants? Mm-hmm. Um, Good question. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the Ten Commandments, um, I think that our, our relationship to them is different than, our relation, than the Old Testament people's relationship to them. Mm-hmm. But we still, I think that what the Ten Commandments do is they serve as a, as a template for how life works best and how God intends for his people to live. Mm-hmm. And so as we are living in Christ and by his Spirit, those things will grow in us and, and increasingly become real in our lives mm-hmm. because that is like the kind of the baseline of what God's character and nature is. But I think there's a difference in saying that than saying we have to obey these Ten Commandments to be saved. 
Because we'll fail to keep those Ten Commandments every step of the way if we are doing it in our own strength. So that's where Jesus says, okay, you, you say don't murder. Okay, well, check, I have never murdered anyone. But then he says, well, no, but you've been angry at somebody, so that's a problem. You know, so he's just basically pointing out that even the, even the easy commandments to obey, we've failed to obey. Um, but he's perfectly obeyed them. But now as we live in Christ, those things can actually be lived better and better as he empowers us to do it, okay. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's a good question, though. Yeah. You referenced uh, the perfection of Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the difference between perfection and innocence? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, no, I can't. So, <laughs> uh, at least not right now. I, I'm just like, nope, I, I'd have to think about that a little bit. So, the so, only thing that I've heard, yeah. I didn't know where you might stand with it, say that they were perfect, then how, in a certain sense, how could they have failed? Yeah. But they were definitely innocent yep. uh, until they made that choice at which point in time they sin came in. Um, it's a slight play on words that, yeah. that can be important and at times we don't want to become legalistic with it either. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was thinking is when you were talking about sin, we understand a lot about DNA now. And it's in the DNA. Yeah. And you can chase, trace your lineage through this stuff by DNA way back to yeah. the Celtics or the Russians or wherever we come from. Mm-hmm. And, and so sin is the same thing. It's, it's inherent in that DNA. You yeah. don't have the choice. It's hair color, height, weight. Yep. All that stuff is passed on down through. For sure. I totally agree. And that the innocence and perfection distinction, you're probably right. I, I, I should give some thought to that because I think you you make a lot of sense on the the nuance there I'll think about that maybe not too hard but I I will I will give some thought to it so (laughs) that's helpful um okay so let's let's just wrap this up in the next four or five minutes here um I want to just quickly apply some of this to us um we've looked at sin we've looked at covenants but this is a pretty you know discouraging uh thing when we just look at the the sin issue right and Sin so corrupts us that we are unable to come to God apart from Jesus, bringing us grace and, and giving us new hearts. But we need, we need to hear this. We need to know that our, our, we are totally unable and uh, totally depraved so that all we can really hope on is Jesus. But, but he's, he's come to do that work for us. And we will dig into this much more in the next couple weeks. But I just want to read Titus chapter 3. Uh, three to eight, because I think these are these are really helpful verses. It says, "For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us." not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I, I love these verses because I think they just so, so beautifully summarize the salvation that we have in Jesus. Verse, verse 3 uh, outlines our condition apart from him, our sinful condition, that we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. It's not like we had a choice. We just, we just went after these things, passing our days in malice and envy. On and on we go, like just the brokenness of our lives. And then there's this hard turn in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. But how did he save us? It was not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God looked at us and said, they have no hope on their own. So I'm going to extend all of my mercy, my grace, my care towards them to bring them to me. He washed us with regeneration. We're going to talk about what regeneration is in a future uh, lesson here. But in a nutshell, regeneration is a new heart. He gives us a brand new way of, uh, of feeling towards him, of believing in him, of trusting him. He does that. He renews us through the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus. And he justifies us by his grace. So he puts us back into a right relationship with him by grace. This, all of this was done not because of works done by us, but because of his own mercy. And that's really where we need to land as, as people, as Christians, as we have our hearts turned to Jesus. We need to be grateful that though our sin is as scarlet, he washed it white as snow. Right? Our sin taints everything about us but he washes us completely clean, purely by grace and mercy. So if nothing else, don't be discouraged. If you're in Jesus, you're, you're good. For in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We're, we've been transferred out of Adam into Christ. And that's the best news of all. So, all right, with that, I will close. I'll pray for us. Next week, we'll do the person of Christ. And we're excited for that. So Jesus, thank you for giving us the night together. We pray that we would walk out of here uh, more in love with you and more emboldened to um, share your love with others. And we, I pray that you would give us hearts of gratitude and joy in you. And we thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, guys.